y'all tuned into the 585 Report with Atiana Bishop. Catch us each and every Sunday from 6 to 7 p.m. on 100.9 WXIR. We seek to elevate the conversation on Rochester, New York, through go-getters from around the town. What's up, y'all? What's good? Bishop, oh, wait. I was going to say Bishop on time, but we started late, so Bishop is not on time. I don't like airing my business out like that. Okay, maybe. <laughs> That's in-house. That's between us. All right, so Bishop was on time for the recording. Boom. How you doing today? I'm doing good. How you doing? I'm doing well. Can't complain. Nice weather, you know, finally. I, know. I should be out grilling, but instead I'm here recording. I thought I was one of your favorite people. You are. Okay. But I like food too, so you know, it's like give or take and thing, you know? All right, I know I can't compete with food, <laughs> but I am super excited because we have like the busiest man in America in the building <laughs> like I tried to schedule an interview with him last week but he got tied up which is understandable with the work that he does but I'm going to let you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background all right cool so um, I'm Dr. Leonard Brock executive director for the Rochester Bunro anti-poverty initiative essentially a work across um public and private sectors to be able to bridge the gap as it relates to policy and practices that could reduce poverty in the Rochester area. So I work indirectly with the governor, city of Rochester, the county, and a host of other institutions like the United Way to bring resources and align leaders in a way that will allow for them to, to do the work necessary to help people in poverty. In addition to that, I'm a business owner, and I think I'm on here today to talk about Neighborhood Scholar, yes. which is a company I founded yes. in you know, 2014. Okay, so Neighborhood Scholar, tell us how it came about. Yeah, so Neighborhood Scholar, all my life I've been labeled um, everything that you can think about when you um, consider a young person growing up in public housing and projects, et cetera. So I've always been a very smart individual, but because of my entire um, vernacular lived experience, nobody expected me to do anything or half of what I'm doing today. So when I was younger, there was this whole thing of intelligent dog and all these other, you know, these different labels and, and people didn't necessarily acknowledge, you know, school being cool. And, and being that I was able to somewhat creep my own lane, I wanted to be able to popularize scholarship or make it cool to be smart. So at the time, you know, uh, Trayvon Martin, Trayvon Martin, um, his untimely death, and partly the reason that led to his death had to do with um, his clothing, his attire, and obviously a bigot that killed him because he speculated because he had on a hoodie, he must have been up to no good. And I could recall being in a similar situation where oftentimes my attire caused people to stereotype me or label me as something other than who I was as an individual. So I created the brand Neighborhood Scholar as a way to not only, you know, acknowledge that we, you know, you can find a scholar in every neighborhood dressed in any type of attire. Um, the goal was to, to depersonalize um, the individual from their attire and more importantly be able to um, put down any myth or demystify the whole notion that if you don't look as if you are a nerd, if you don't look like you come from a different neighborhood or you come from a different environment or you don't come from a different setting, then, then, then obviously you don't belong. So we're just trying to create a lane for those individuals out there who still about that life, but ultimately being able to tap into their intellect as a way to level the playing field and do something besides playing ball or being an entertainer. Whatever. Right. Right, because I have a lot of students who that's all they want to do. Right. And they don't realize that it's so much more that they can accomplish. I guess, you know, it is what it is. And we need people like you to show them that there's more that they can accomplish. Appreciate that. So why do you think now more than ever that we need to promote scholarship in our community? Because yeah, there's a social conditioning, you know. You have a host of individuals who don't even aspire to go to school. They don't look at academic achievement as a viable means of doing anything. And, and, and obviously we have failing schools years ago and they actually 
they corrected this data point, but um, in Rochester in particular, particularly, we recorded as having a 9% graduation rate amongst African-American males. Wait, nine? Nine, 9%, 9% graduation rate amongst African-American males. And this was the shop report that came out in 20, I want to say like 2012. And there was um, 11% amongst um, Hispanic males. They made some corrections, but ultimately we graduate, we are one of the least we graduate the least number African-American Hispanic males like in the country. Yeah. So obviously if you, you know, and you have a workforce that demands some level of skill acumen or degree qualifications and if we're not graduating young brothers to be and sisters to be part of the workforce, we're doing not only a disservice to them but the entire community. So it's important for us to step up to the plate now because people have to realize that I'm not a, I'm not a rarity, I'm a reality. There's so many Dr. Brocks in this community, but we just haven't taken the time to really cultivate that talent because we don't look at scholarship as something that is that that is part of our popular culture. And that's something that I'm trying to rectify, for lack of a better way of framing it. How do we cultivate that talent? Yeah, you really, you know, individuals like myself, you know, you don't have to give it a label. You can still do you, be you, and people have to acknowledge that, you know, you can go to school. School school pays you know we know about sure. the, the student loan debt you know in mind i think that's the next big bubble but to be quite frank with you you don't have to get an education or engage in scholarship to work for no one you can actually be a knowledge worker and have your own own, own, own i was gonna say your own ish but i don't want to you know um, no right yeah no cursing you can have your own stuff man you can be a boss you can boss up with an education hey. you know and i don't know too many bosses who are illiterate uh, who don't apply knowledge on some level, shape, fashion, or form. So even though you may not necessarily take the route of academic achievement, you can't be a fool and expect to be a boss. So we just gotta, we have to figure out a way to redefine scholarship that make it appropriate for individuals to embrace it versus restricting it to education or school, you know? So I think we just have to do a better job making it part of our um, social condition and the popular culture. And that's that's partly the reason for neighborhood scholarship. So, when you were younger, were you always thinking about college? Was it always at the forefront of your mind, or? Nah, so, I've always been smart, but I didn't, I didn't think about going to college at all. Actually, it was a high school administrator that embarrassed me, that made me look at school as a viable way uh, of living my life outside of the post, you know, allowed me to look at post-secondary as an option. So, um, he basically said I was lazy, I wasn't capable of, of producing. Mm -hmm. or participating at that level and um he was asking all the students for college applications and he asked me so i ain't like it you know and i had this competitive edge so you know i was an athlete at the time like yo listen you gotta be confused so i ended up applying for a few schools and you know made it happen my mother had some issues at the time so i ended up forging all the fast paperwork you know figured it out myself when i first went up to school people thought i was on the run people didn't even know i was actually in school i went to the university of buffalo mm -hmm. and um and I was very fortunate and thankful to get accepted, even though, you know, things didn't work out the traditional way that they typically do. Um, to make a long story short, you know, I didn't necessarily adjust well, but I still, you know, was very competitive and, and made it happen. And then by the time I transferred, because I got into a lot of trouble, socially I didn't adjust, academically I did fairly well after I was able to compete and, and look at students that were just light years ahead of me. And I actually, you know, I know how to hustle, so I made it happen. Um, then transferred to Brockport and I got, you know, my high school, you know, high school, who was my high school girlfriend at that time, um, you know, we were both graduated the same year, you know, she had got pregnant with my son, mm -hmm. and then it was my cousin, I had a family member, and to be quite frank, he was missing in 2000, we followed him in 2001, slain, so at that point, it really mm -hmm. made me look at college as, as a way out, even if it was temporarily, because, you know, it was hot, you know, the summer, it, that was a very, very intense summer, so... It wasn't until then I actually looked at school as a viable alternative to the life and the lifestyle that I was engaged in when I was a teenager still in school. So, you know, but I didn't know, I didn't always aspire to go, on to, to, go to college. You know, I'm a first generation high school graduate. So obviously I didn't think about college. My mom would have been good with the high school diploma. Like, listen, son, I'm proud of you. Not because right. she didn't want more for me. But, you know, she, she came up from the South. She has like a ninth grade education. So I'm a first generation high school graduate, you know, let alone being a college graduate. So it wasn't on the forefront of my mind. That's what I was going to ask you. How, how, did, how did you stack up coming up from school with your peers 
as far as your friends, the people that you hung with, like, were you, were you more focused than they were, or were you like just, just stand, make do, these are my friends, I'm, this is who I'm around? Nah, so erotically, you know, I, 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 I engaged in a lot of different things. So my friends are my friends to this day, and they tell you, like, I've always been a leader. You know, I've never been a follower. And more importantly, you know, I always handled my business, but it wasn't that I made all the right choices. So I always tell people, because the question is always asked, you know, how did you make it and so many other people didn't? And I have so many friends who end up doing 15 years, 16 years. Actually, many of them are home now. And if you were to ask them the question, like, what was the difference between them and me? All I, all I would tell you is I didn't get caught. So it wasn't that, you know, I was set apart from my friends, but I was always smart. I always applied my intellect, even in those situations where we were engaged in risky activity. I always was thoughtful. I think what separated me from many of my friends was the fact that I had a conscience. I was very calculated and methodical, so I wouldn't just do anything. Like, I'm not going to fly off the, the hinges just off of GP. I'm going to make sure I think about this stuff, you know what I mean? Because I ain't want to go to jail and I ain't want to get caught. So, so for me, I used that strategy of growing up, you know, in the projects and that strategy of engaging in those risky activities. And that's actually that those, those leadership, uh, those best practices or those lessons learned, I apply them to this very day in the professional setting. I just know how to cultivate know that talent very differently and transfer those skills they're transferable skills yeah you know so yeah I you know my friends were my friends you know they they probably would say they wouldn't say that I was just focused on school nobody saw this coming in a million years nobody thought that I was going to be a doctor or I was going to you know nobody <laughs> saw that um but they're not surprised by it either yeah so you know? when you decided to go get your doctorate like what were those conversations like what were people thinking yeah it was crazy you know so when i got my master's people were saying i was doing too much like you good bro like you fall back man you make the hood look good man we celebrate you you know what i mean you one of us and you want to did your thing but like i said you know when i realized i could have more and do more i was with it what made me get my master's degree was um that was around the same time that you know the environment was intense and i remember having a conversation with the director for the eop program and Susan brockport like listen if i graduate and go back home you know there's a likelihood man i ain't gonna make it man i was really that fearful and that that senior year was even when i pledged a fraternity because i was so adamant of changing my social surrounding and uh, also my social network that I was just afraid that it wasn't going to pan out in my in my favor if I were to go back home with a degree. So I actually started to panic a little bit. So he said, listen, I can get you a job as an EOP counselor if you were to enroll in grad school. And I had a friend of mine, um, you know, Cambodian, I called her my Cambodian sister, Sophia So She was getting her master's in public administration. So I said, ah, that's what I'm doing. You know, right. she's doing it, that's what I'm going to do. And that turned out to be exactly what I wanted to do and exactly what, you know, God, you know, instilled in me in terms of my purpose. But yeah, you know, that conversation was crazy when I got my master's. Now, when I got my doctorate, it was because at the time my, um, I finished my master's, you know, I was working as an EOP counselor and I said, yo, I want to I wanna be able to cultivate talent in the neighborhood. So I want to go back to the neighborhood and do my work because I was working out in Brockport and it was this guy, Rod Jones. He was from the projects in Brooklyn. You know, he's not from Rochester, but he had a similar story to mine and he hired me and I said, all right, you about to get busy. So I ended up working up the ranks and he actually applied to get his doctorate degree. And I said, y'all must have applied with him, him and the HR director. I got denied though. Mm -hmm. They told me I was too young. They basically said I had insufficient leadership experience. And like I told you, I was very competitive. Yeah, so. Young? Yeah, I was 24 and I applied. I, I still. Oh, you yeah. still. Uh, and I, I, I actually. I actually still, I graduated the youngest um, person from St. John Fisher with a doctorate at the time. So that I, I applied the next year. They told me I had to basically vacuum two years of leadership experience. I went back because, like I said, the president and the HR director were both in the program. I took on two departments and basically they had to pay me. I said, listen, I take on both departments and I knocked it out the park. Applied the next year and unanimously, I got voted in because they said, oh, you just do crazy. Like, he really want <laughs> in. Really like, he's not going to stop. Exactly. So yeah, I was 25 when I um, actually enrolled in a doctorate program, and and I actually defended my dissertation literally on my 28th birthday. Wow. So and at that time, I was the youngest in, in the history of the school to obtain a doctorate. 
That's crazy. Yeah, it was wild at the time. Yeah, and then just think about it. That was 10 years ago. Wow. I my doctorate 10 years in August of this year. In August of this year, to be 10 years. It's crazy. Well, how does that make you feel? It makes me feel like time doesn't wait for no man. Right. <laughs> it seems like yesterday. <laughs> you know, every day I'm looking at a new gray hair like, wow, man. Like, I want to slow it down a little right now. All right, so all of this good work that you're doing and you're accomplishing, how are you going to get your message out to the younger folks, the younger generation, the kids that are coming up now? I need the help of the community because I'm really not that, I'm not special. I'm not that different from the young. Like I said, the only thing that separated me from many of my friends who end up doing serious time is the fact I didn't get caught. So the minute we can start looking at our young people not as, you know, I, I was going to say cancer to society. The minute we can start to look at them and see potential to see future scholars and be able to pour life into them, then we can start to change the narrative. We really need to redefine the narrative for our young people. So I'm going to do as much as I possibly can. And I, more importantly, I want to get some younger ambassadors. Mm-hmm. Like there's a friend of mine, Andre Johnson. He just finished his master's degree and he embraced that neighborhood scholar. My man, Norman Simmons, you know, he's a young man uh, um, doing his thing right now. And I you know he embraced that neighborhood scholar. I almost want to say he got like a scholar tattooed even on his chest. You know, so we, we from this, we from the neighborhood. We, we, we don't come from uh, neighborhoods where scholarship was embraced. So, you know, we from we were project kids, you know, we east side kids and even west side. So, you know, we come from the pits of it. You know, I spent 23 years of my life living in public houses. So it's not like we grew up with silver spoons in our mouths. We're trying to make it happen. And the thing is, there's multiple Leonard Brocks. There's multiple Norman Simmons, Dre Johnsons, you know, Justin Morris. And there's a host of us, you know, even yourself, you know. So the goal is for us just to get the word out. I need as many people in the community doing that. We need ambassadors. We need people to lift the brand. It's not about me. It's not a business. It's not a T-shirt company or a hoodie company. It's not that. You know, we got a million to one of those in Rochester. It's really a movement to get the message out to as many people as possible so they can actually be socially condition to see scholarship as the new best thing for them. And how would someone go about joining the movement? Listen, they join the movement by getting the apparel, neighborhoodscholar.com. Um, and obviously, there's going to be a significant number of speaking engagements, consulting. My first book initially was going to be called From the Block to the Boardroom. And I was going to talk about my, tr- my transition and the trajectory that I took. But I'm going to na- label the first book Neighborhood Scholar. It's going to be like a memoir. So that's going to be an opportunity for me to get the word out there, too. And I'm still looking for ways to, to create a stronger movement and, and, and ways that people can engage that's, that's, that's on the softer end of the spectrum. So we're not asking people to do much, but just promote you know, as you know, repetition is everything. What you are immersed in and inundated with, that becomes reality. So this is about the social construction of reality. How do we construct a reality that scholarship is the new cool? How, how, how would you say, how do we get the schools involved with this movement? Because clearly, we can do what we do out mm-hmm. here in the streets. Mm-hmm. But we got to get the schools that these these scholars are attending to get on board also. Yeah, I like that how, scholars attending. How, how do we how do we get how how do we pull in the school district? Because I remember you saying the low graduation rates and everything. How do we join forces with them to get them on board so they can start taking as serious as we are? Yeah. I think many teachers, you know, they rep the brand, the brand hard, like Kim Brown, she's at school number three. We have um, you know, the principal, Stephanie. There's a few teachers and principals that really rock with it, you know, Alicia Thomas and, and, and others. Um, so there are a lot of educators that really rock with the brand. They love the message. My man, Corey, he's actually getting his doctorate from St. John Fisher now, too. Um, but we need the district officials to embrace this. This has to be something that the entire school district is able to lift as something that is a priority. And I'm working on it, you know. The, the problem is, you know, district leadership change every two and three years. The inconsistency is part of the problem. Oh, we know. Yeah. Oh, do we know. <laughs> every other year there's a new administration and that's a problem. But, you know, we can't, you know, young people and family, they have to make this mandatory, you know. This shouldn't be optional, you know. Their well-being shouldn't be left. Um, at the hands of those individuals who may not identify with their story, their narrative. So the more 
we can actually, you know, like I said, inundate the community and make the school district, which is a byproduct, they have to service the community. You know, then hopefully they'll be able to look at this as something that they should do a much better job endorsing. Um, I know you were talking a little bit off air about what's next for Neighborhood Scholar. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Speak to that? Yeah, yeah. So in the future, we're looking to do a significant you know, amount of consulting. So working with school districts and colleges or educational institutions, municipalities across the country um, to, to create a movement that is not just permeating Rochester, but really being be able to spread throughout the U.S. I've been uh, able and blessed to do some work throughout the East Coast, and you know, there's hoodies right now being sold in seven different markets. So that, that's a good look. And with my son going to school in North Carolina A&T, and he's going to major in business. And actually, I, I initially founded the company with him. You know, so this is going to be a platform for him to do his thing as well. So you know, obviously, the consulting, the publishing, the first book is going to be Neighborhood Scholar. And then we want to continue with the merchandising. We want to get as much um, apparel out there as possible. So hoodies, t-shirts, hats. Um, we want people wearing the apparel. We want people asking the question because the logo is very catchy. So people, every time I wear the logo or any one of my contemporaries who's wearing the logo, people ask the question, well, what is that? I like that. So no matter where we are, so I was even in North Carolina a few months ago and, and there were a few of my um, bros was wearing the t-shirt and everywhere they went, people were stopping them, asking them where they get the t-shirt from and what it's about. And then the message speaks for itself, you know. Mm. I think I definitely got to get a neighborhood yeah. scholar. Should have been had one. I know. This is actually my first time hearing about it. Yeah. I know I'm in and out the city, but mm-hmm. this is really my first time hearing about it. Well, now that you know, you need to have your neighborhood scholar. Oh, that's a, that's a <laughs> fact. That's the, I'm definitely going to get on the wave, get on the brand and start supporting doing my part as far as community service. What upcoming events in the community-wise right. do we have coming up? Yeah, so right now we really don't have any neighborhood neighborhood scholar sanctioned events, but we're going to be at Juneteenth and different events like that with the apparel. We're going to have tables. Um, last year or the year prior, I had a table at uh, the TV tournament, so we may do that again. I'm going to talk with my man, Eddie, and that was a platform that we were able to use to kind of get the word out about neighborhood scholar and you know, we, we sold out both days that we were there. People just, you know, they embraced it. They respected it. And then individuals who know my story, you know, so the authenticity behind the message is there too. So you have individuals who respect the brand because they respect the person who created the brand. So that goes a long way as well, you know, just being able to relate to that story. And how does promoting scholarship align with the work that you're currently doing. Yeah, so the two are separate, but as you know, you know, education is an economic equalizer, all these people say. Um, I don't necessarily subscribe to get a good education, you get a good job, you live a good life. I think that's BS for, for a couple of reasons. You do have people who have a good education, who have a job, and still live in the poverty. So I ain't gonna say it's the way out of poverty, mm-hmm. but it certainly is an opportunity to improve your likelihood of not having to live in poverty. So obviously, education and poverty go hand in glove. The the chicken and edge, the chicken and egg conversation all the time. You know, you can't look at education in the absence of poverty or socioeconomic status. You can't look at you know poverty without thinking about the educational outcomes associated with individuals who are experiencing poverty. So it goes hand in glove. There's no way of really disaggregating the two. But as far as my work is concerned, I keep the two completely separate, though. Okay. So thank you for tuning in to 100.9 WXIR. You're tuned into the 585 Report with Atiana and Bishop. We are on 6 to 7 every Sunday. If you are just tuning in, we have Dr. Leonard Brock in the building. And we're discussing Neighborhood Scholar and some of what's going on in our community and how Neighborhood Scholar could really help individuals who may not necessarily have education at the forefront of their mind, but once they hear the message, it may guide them in the direction towards continuing education. So as far as the work that you do, what made you go into this line of work? You know what, so I always wanted to service the community in which I grew up, so what led to me leaving Broadport to work in the community was the simple fact that I wanted to cultivate, create 
more individuals um, like me who may not have mentors or, or people to advise and counsel them. And there weren't too many examples. So I always wanted to do this work and then watch my mom struggle when I was younger and, and really have to deal with the, the pitfalls related to poverty was something that angered me. So what led to many of my risky decisions uh, when I was younger wasn't because I just, you know, was this greedy individual that just didn't necessarily care about um, the world and was out for myself. It was really trying to improve the quality of life for my mom. So so watching her struggle really bothered me on so many different fronts. So it, it really was inspired by her. Um, and, 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 you know, I worked in various different fields. Like, you know, people really don't even know what I do professionally because I worked in education. I worked in education reform. Uh, I worked in human services. I worked in higher education. And this work around poverty reduction, like I said, it's it's a public-private partnership or a coalition of different institutional leaders. So I was appointed. So at the time, in 2015, this thing already happened. The government, I mean, the governor, I said the government, but yeah, what the government? The governor had uh, basically said, we need to do something big and bold to address poverty in Rochester because um, at the time there was uh, nonprofits that were trying to scale up the program. He's like, listen, programs aren't, aren't, aren't going to cut it. And there was a few reports that came out of Rochester. And I guess there was already individuals who, you know, the way this community worked, you know, it's all about association. They had people who they wanted to be part of the, the network. And I think they already had somebody earmarked for my job. The mayor said, listen, if y'all don't hire an authentic leader, I'm out of here. And there's an article about it because she threatened to say, listen, if y'all going to hire somebody who don't know anything about poverty, the people, you know, she going to pull away from it. She don't want no parts of it. So to make a long story short, but I'll get into the politics, um, I was the person who, you know, had the degree qualifications, all the credentials and represented, you know, the community in such a way that, you know, the mayor was able to embrace because, you know, clearly she knows my story. I knew her prior to her being the mayor and, and she was on city council and we go back um, quite some time. So I didn't want to be the director. Mm -hmm. I actually pushed back because I was the executive director for Rock the Future Education Reform. And I felt I was set up to fail because I was one person responsible for a plethora of responsibilities and I wasn't with it because with these public-private partnerships, it's a new wave of leadership and people are not accustomed to it. So they don't understand how, how much work it takes. Um, so going through the experience of Rock the Future, and I did that for a few years, I just was, I wasn't with it. I said, I do the deputy director, but I'm not really trying to be the director because I understand how these things work. Well, at least I thought I did. So she hit me up like, listen, that's a disservice to the community. Like, And she's absolutely right. <laughs> she's absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah, so she hit me up and I, you know, and basically, and she was she was a, a woman of her word. She she promised me that she'll support me and I won't be in the same predicament that I was in prior and, and it worked itself out. I only had one staff person for a few years though, you know. Wow. Yeah, but now I got a team and they, they're dope too. They're doing their thing. So I have a, a team of seven, so we're getting busy out here right now. So I can understand why you said you didn't want to be the director, especially with the initiative like this big. And then you hear all the news reports like this amount of money. And then people are like, you know, what is Brock doing? Right. <laughs> As if the whole initiative is just you. Right. Like it's just not other people connected to you. So I understand like, I understand. Yeah. However, just like the mayor said, like, it's a disservice because you know mm -hmm. you've been in a situation where poverty was your reality. Right. And now you're Dr. Leonard Brock. Right, right. I appreciate that. Yeah, a lot of people, it, it, this job, it, it's a big role that comes with a lot of responsibility and criticism. Um, there was a, a false narrative in the beginning. People assumed I had $100 million. That was a narrative back in the day. <laughs> like you had it in your pocket? Yeah. So peep this. You know how, how it's crazy to think about this, right? How funny that is? I'm dead serious. No, I people, saw the news stories. Yeah. Like when you, you know how those news stories go and then people have all their comments on yeah. like, I saw it and I was just like, Jeez. So they just thought you just popped up with a hundred yeah, million dollars. Yeah, you think a hundred million dollars because the, the, the region received $500 million, mm -hmm. a half a billion, very similar to the Buffalo billion. A hundred million dollars was allocated as part of the Regional Economic Development Council to support poverty-related efforts. Obviously, the work that we're doing in our map was going to um, receive support, but none of that money was managed by me. 
but because it's poverty and it's money and it's $100 million and I'm so-called a poverty man, everyone just associated that I was responsible for the $100 million. And even to this day, and that's part of the reason why I'm moving hard with the neighborhood scholar because the label of being a poverty man is demobilizing in many ways because yeah. one person is not responsible for poverty, but people literally, like you said, I don't even read the comments. When I tell uh, you- I did because it's you, and I know yeah, it's you I'm that's not, over it. So you normally, I don't read the comments because yeah. people are so racist and they're so yeah. negative and they can be just so nasty, but I was just like- They've been going hard for the last several years. And people still to this very day, I'm still asked the question, what are y'all doing with all that money? Like they probably could see you on the street and be like, hey, Litter, yeah. can I talk to you right, for a moment? Right, right. <laughs> like, yo, listen, I need help. And then when you can't do it, and they just assume, because they read an article and this, you know, they speculate that you have resources that you don't, and you don't come through, they just assume that you, you, know, you don't want to, or you're trying to be funny with the money. I'm like, man, listen, <laughs> it's crazy. So understand. in other words, they think that it's the 100 million in your account, and, and right. you gotta divvy it out the way you want to. Right, they think I'm sitting on some bread right now. <laughs> you know what's wild though, in the narrative, like even, like I had a BMW, you remember I had a BMW. Oh yeah. Like before I was with the initiative, I had, Polite is everything I ever had, I had it before I was the, with the initiative. Once I was appointed or hired to serve as a director for RMAPI, I pretty much had to give up all of that stuff because people just didn't, it was wild. So everything I had prior to being with the initiative, people just speculated that, oh, that's where the money is going. Right. Even vacations. I went on a vacation. I remember a, um, a leader in our community hit me up somewhat, you know, to criticize me for putting on Facebook um, you know, celebrating the anniversary, so I went out the country, which is something I've done for 10 years straight. And you're not supposed to live and your I, life, even I, though you're exactly uh, what people like, are I'm crazy anti poverty, <laughs> like, anti like you know, that's the whole point of being a success story. So, you're not so that's that's one of the negatives that come with that label with poverty right. being the first word, like that's right. This is how you're still supposed to be living right. for some reason. Right, it's foolish. I don't, I don't. I, why, why, why do you feel people feel like since poverty is the first word they see right. that since you're a director, you should be directly affected by it to this day still. Right. You know, because some people don't see us as anything other than being people who experience poverty. Mm. You know, so you know, there, there's two things. There's ascribed status, like you know, you born in it, and then there's achieved status. The minute you have achieved status. That goes beyond being in poverty it makes people uncomfortable that's their their narrative of us oftentimes and even of ourselves is not that we should be living comfortably if we see someone living comfortably irrespective of the reason why especially if it's legitimate it comes with a host of different you know just just it comes with with i'm just going to say a different level of response and it's unfortunate. And we then know, we know that response. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the same thing with, you know, our counterparts, right? They may see it and be like, okay, we got a little token over here. And yeah, they, token. Yeah, you know, and they try to tokenize <laughs> you. And they try to control you. And, and, and that's not, you know, listen, we don't... Listen, I... I How did you navigate around that? Like, because I've seen it in so many... Especially working for Wegmans, when I worked for Wegmans, because it wasn't a lot of us in management. But when you were, they tried to make you the token. Yeah. I'm an unapologetic black man. And I'm not apologizing for my lived experience, or nor am I apologizing for the work I'm trying to do to, to liberate the community and our people as a whole, right? So, I use facts. Uh, you know, obviously I'm opinionated. I have an opinion about anything, but I use information, I use data, I use facts. I'm trained as a social scientist. So I'm able to mitigate many arguments by just presenting facts. You know, for example, one of the, there's three guiding principles related to the work that I'm doing. And this is when it splinter people, and I'm gonna shut down. We said there's three root causes of three things associated with poverty that if we don't address, we're not gonna be able to move the needle. Structural racism, trauma, community building. When a conversation on structural racism came up, it split this community in half. You had people actually leaving and storming out of meetings, and people were threatening that if we keep that as one of the guiding principles, that they're going to walk away from the initiative. And this is the very community that's responsible for creating some of this, 
this work that we're trying to overcome. It's crazy that they don't want to have those conversations. Like, if we can't have those conversations, how are we going to move forward? Yeah, exactly. And the question becomes, are we really trying to move forward or are we just trying to make it appear? It, it becomes more symbolism than anything. And, and that's the thing. I'm not in this role for symbolic reasons. Like, if I were to be that token Negro that took the good job and said, I'm going to keep it pushing, I mean, I would have been, you know, I, I would have been the happy, what do you call it, the happy magical Negro walking around here just cheesing like, yeah, I got a good job. It, it's That's corny, you know. So, and then that's the good thing with having your own resources prior to a job like this because you know you're not dependent on anyone for anything. I got my own you know, personal agency. So, you know, you know, oftentimes they dangle that money in front of you and they basically, you know, that's a way, you know, just for individuals to control you in your narrative because they figure if they're paying you, then they control you. And it doesn't work like that for me, you know, and it's never going to work like that. And the good thing is I have a community um, that supports that and the mayor who supports that. So there's people who really, really, really rock with me and not just black people either. I got a, I got a lot of people, a lot of know, allies, a lot of allies that rock with me too. And that's what they expect from me. The good thing, the good thing is because of the lived experience, people expect me to be this. Um, type of leader. Mm -hmm. In the absence of being this type of leader, I wouldn't be who I am. So even though it makes a lot of people uncomfortable and it creates some discomfort, there's an expectation. Well, that's just, you know, Brock going to give it to you. I ain't going to give it up. So. Mm -hmm. so when talking about poverty, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about people that are in poverty. What do you feel like some of those misconceptions are? Yeah, it's a lot of misconceptions. I think, um, like I said, we talked about a social construction reality as it relates to scholarship, but poverty is a construct as well. You know, we, we, we talk about poverty and we say it's a bunch of black single female heads of households having kids at a wedlock and a bunch of brothers who want to take care of the responsibility. That's the narrative. We say it's a bunch of black people who are on welfare and, and Hispanic people who are on welfare and they're lazy and all that. But that's why I said use data. When you look at the data, and let's just use the label working poor. These are people who are working part-time, full-time, part-year looking for employment. Half don't have children. Wow. And, and guess what? A quarter, so 25% have a post-secondary credential. And guess what? Many of those individuals are in the workforce. So if, if in fact, you don't have a child, you're educated, you have a post-secondary credential, you're working, you know, and you're still living in poverty, who's, the, who's at fault? It becomes a systemic challenge. And, and by us personalizing it or making it the individual's responsibility, I think that's always been something that that plagued our community and will continue to plague our community unless we understand that it's policies and institutional practices that created poverty that is going to take policies and institutional practices that's going to be able to remove the barriers to poverty. Do you think it's too many moving pieces? Well, let me rephrase that. There's so many moving pieces mm -hmm. that it's like when you move this piece out the way, you got three behind you. That's right. So do you think that's one of the major reasons that we we hear about all this change taking place, mm -hmm. but nobody sees it because they don't see behind those other three moving pieces that right. haven't went anywhere yet? Right. Yeah, it, it's, it's hard. So you're right. It's very complicated. It's very confusing, too. Um, and there's so many different layers. There are so many different parts. So absolutely, I think it's very difficult. And if you are in survival mode, you're not trying to think 10 steps. You're trying to think 10 seconds, you know what I mean? Right. So you're not, you're, not, you're not thinking, you know, strategically about the future when you are in crisis mode. So it's very hard to get out of that rut uh, when you got some real urgent, immediate crises in front of you that you're trying to handle and deal with. And the number, and the amount of stress um, that you have to endure makes it impossible. It impairs your judgment and your ability in which to do it. And I think some of that is intentional. I'm not gonna say all of it. This is not about the man creating this. This is it's not that at all. But when we look historically, you know, at poverty, and we look at, again, like I said, those policies and institutional practices, and it's confusing. You look at the GI Bill. The GI Bill was responsible for a lot of veterans leaving the war and being able to leverage zero interest loans. Those, those loans led to a significant number of people who are not people who are white primarily being homeowners 
And then guess what? You build equity. So like even in Monroe County, 98% of um, people who were able to take advantage of the GI Bill across the country were white. Not a single person in Monroe County was able to get one at that time. So then think about the income gap. So then you look at that. So then, you know, you got housing, you got income, you got education, you got poor health, and all these work hand in glove. So if I'm a person who is living in the midst of these public policies, because housing is a public policy, health is a public policy, education is a public policy, I'm in the middle of all these public policies that's working not in my favor, it makes it very difficult for me. And they say, you know, pull your boots, pull pull your boots up by, by the by the bootstrap. I don't have a pair of boots. I don't even, you know, there's not even a book bookstore nowhere nearby. What you expect from these people? And that's the thing that you know, just it's, it's, it's crazy. And, and like I said, the media and the narrative that's created, that social conditioning, or many people refer to it as social engineering, mm-hmm. that's real. We see it played out time in and time out. Mm-hmm. That's the reason why you have all these images of like, you know, people of color, black belt in particular, being viewed as angry, violent. That's them from like the turn of the 20th century. And even, you know, after the abolitionist movement in the, in the, you know, after the 1865, when, you know, we've been villainized, like you got us being viewed as, you know, not only angry and aggressive, but just dangerous. We gotta protect America against these 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 beasts, and then look at current day. We getting slain in the streets, and it's the same image. It's, it's crazy because they don't even try to hide it no more. Like it's 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 plain as day. Like they used to try to they used to put out press statements when they see something about a black man. Now nowadays it's just well we gonna run it regardless and. Y'all, this is what y'all gonna see. You know why they have to? Because we work in a day and age where information is immediate. You know, just like we're, we're recording this interview right now live, and it could be viewers watching it right now, and that's not the case, but we're, we're working in the social media era. So if the news media don't get the story out, the story's gonna leak out, so they wanna put their spin, their narrative on it before the masses get a chance to kind of dissect it and do what they wanna do with it. So you got that, and also what we had in the past, which we don't have now, there are no consequences. So we're not a united, um, organized group of individuals anymore. So when things happen, we respond with anger, but we need, there's no organized effort. You know, to counteract it. So think about it. What are the consequences? How many black Fake men? outrage. Right. How many, how many black men are going to get slayed before we start to realize, like, yo, that's just what happens? I think gonna, it's just people, like you said, there are no consequences. We get fake outrage. We write it on about it on social media for maybe a week. Mm-hmm. And then it's on to the next topic. People people get upset with me because my views are different on a lot of things. Like, I, I've been fortunate enough to be, live around the world and, uh, and see different cultures and seeing people die face to face. I've had friends die in war and everything. So I look at stuff a little bit different than other people and I'm educated so that that's a plus even more. But when something happens, I look at it outside the box and everybody and the first thing people tell me is I'm anti-black. Like I'm anti-black because I see the whole picture. Like they look at me like you don't, you don't, you're not black enough because you want to take this person's side. I'm not taking nobody's side. I'm going by what I see. That's all we could do these days is go by what we see. And and for some reason, people don't want to accept that and it becomes a trend. They, they just want to post this and post that because it's a trend because everybody else is posting. See, this is the thing, you know, and the threat of, of basing an assumption off of what you see, the question becomes, what do they want you to see? Yeah. So that's how the narrative sometimes is, is created or drafted, is that the narrative doesn't necessarily, it's not a complete narrative. And, and, and there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. But we know media and propaganda has been used for a long time right. to manipulate you know, the culture. And, and it's gonna continue in that fashion until we figure out how to do it for ourselves. Um, so, you know, you can't look to dominant systems and structures and, and expect anything different than what you're getting. And until we as a community come together, you know, we, you know on a unified front, you know, to be honest with you, you could expect some of that. And that's not to say that we need to accept it, because if you tolerate anything, you accept it. And if you accept it, eventually it becomes a social norm. And if it becomes a social norm, then you become desensitized to it. 
and we don't want that to ever be the case. We have to disrupt it, but we also have to understand and acknowledge that we have to be creators and doers for ourselves. Do you feel that Rochester is on that verge of becoming the social norm? Like, mean? our poverty, this is just how we live. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because you hear people say it all the time, well, this is Rochester, Rochester this, Rochester that, but it's Rochester, so, so oh well. Right, so, to that point, we have, like, okay, poverty. We have people who are have been in poverty, their families have been in poverty, and their families have been in poverty, and so on and so forth. And it becomes like a mindset. And so, how do we get to change in that mindset? Or do you think, like, poverty is just going to be something that is going to be accepted? Because, like, I remember back in the day when you had food stamps, like, you were embarrassed. Like, it wasn't a thing that you, like, talked about. But now it's, like, the norm. And people, students will be like, well, how much you get a month? And then I had a student be like, miss, can I buy some food stamps from you? And I'm like... I don't get food stamps. So they kind of think like that's their norm. It's right. Like I said, if it's tolerated, again, once it's tolerated, it becomes um, accepted. Once it becomes accepted, it becomes a social norm. So yes, you're right. So there's two things um, to respond directly to that. Will it become the norm? Unfortunately, it is the norm. And that's the point. We need to disrupt it. Two is that it's only the norm for individuals who subscribe to it. We have to redefine even poverty, right? So... In Rochester, the city of Rochester, there are 67% of the population, 67% of the population is um, not self-sufficient. So if you ask me here, they're living in poverty, right? Wait, 67%? So 33% is the label they give. And if a person is living in poverty, mind you, the formula is from like the the early 1960s. And that was from the, think about, it's a formula from the 1960s. It doesn't account for the cost of inflation or anything else. So if you have to support a family of four off of 20, let's just say $25,000, it's impossible, right? Mm-hmm. But that's the formula we're working with right now. To be self-sufficient, to support a family of four, you need close to like $80,000. Seriously. So 67% of the population is not self-sufficient. Only a third of the population in the city of Rochester is considered self-sufficient, meaning um, by different quality of life indicators. If that's the case, right, you got 67% of the population that's economically insecure. We're thinking about poverty as the individuals who are chronic. So they are in crisis. These are not just individuals who are in poverty, they are in crisis. Mm -hmm. And if you look to just focus solely on individuals who are in crisis, you're going to get those marginal levels of performance as it relates to outcomes. You take anything, you take any, you know, because again, we're talking about chronic issues and crisis. We're doing nothing to support the individuals who are straddling the fence. And there's a thing like the benefits cliff. And how are we helping individuals that's showing the the, the, for, the the wherewithal and the fortitude to improve their lot in life? We need to do more in that space. There's more people who actually want to do uh, what's necessary to move themselves out of poverty than who want to just say, you know what? I give up, you know? I'm gonna I'm take advantage of these public supports. That's my life and that's what it is. I always say something that's not popular. People, you know, really criticize me for this, but again, I'm on a pop. It is what it is. I'm not in the business of forcing people. I'm in the business of helping people who want to help themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and, and as simple as that. So, you know, I'm going to do my best to help everyone, but the minute a person resists, I can't do I can't use There's not much I can do. I'm not saying there's not much anyone else could do because there are some other issues there, but that's not my line of work. So, you know, I'm going to try to create all the opportunities in the world to support individuals because there are more individuals that they do not, they're not part of these equations. So when you think, we don't even capture data for them. So we go from poverty to self-sufficiency and we don't even have data. There's no data for half the population or a third of the population who are not in poverty who are not self-sufficient. We don't even capture data. But if you're going to have a real impact, you need to figure out a way to support them. So how, right. how do we get that formula changed? You know, that's public policy. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's public policy, and we need to fight for it. You know, since um, 
you know, they're going to actually, you know, capture more information and data. And the city of Rochester has this push coming out, which is really good. But I think we have to push for the formula to be changed. And this is something interesting, and people don't know this. So from like 1964 to, let's just say, the early 1970s, guess what happened to poverty in the United States? Poverty went down. So the New Deal and, and, and so-called the war on poverty, it worked, but it was going to be sustained. It was public policies. So if it worked, you will sustain something that worked, right? So I ask the question, why didn't, why didn't we sustain it? Because it never was intended for us to eradicate or really reduce poverty. America is predicated on having a permanent underclass. That's the reason for mass incarceration. That's the reason for the social inequities that we experience today. There, it's predicated, it's interwoven into even our, our constitution. So like we watch document, documentaries like 13th, it's an amendment, meaning it's a, an amendment that wasn't part of the original document, right? So there's real law in place or that has always been in place from our forefathers to keep you know a permanent underclass because that's the only way that American you know society was able to function and flourish you know you know I'm pretty sure yeah, if you never heard this you know I, I, it's not my quote but it said America was a corporation before it was a country Absolutely. and I believe yeah. America always been in, I think it's, it's always still been still a corporation. Yeah. it's still is a corporation right so if you're just tuning in we are talking to Dr. Leonard Brock Oh, 100.9 WXIR, the 585 report with Atiana and Bishop. And we started out talking about Neighborhood Scholar, and we moved on to some of the work that Brock is doing with our Maffy. Um, so my question to you right now is, why do you think people are so critical of the work that you're doing? Because they don't understand it. And it's easy to, to criticize something that you don't understand. It's also easy to place blame for something that you don't necessarily know to resolve. Um, Rochester has done that for a long time, right? There's always got to be like a fall guy or someone who's responsible. The fall guy. Yeah, there got to be a fall guy, someone who's, who's responsible. But I'm not. I, it's not going to happen. Right. You know, it's just not gonna happen. So, you know, the criticism comes with the role, and I expected at this point I got really thick skin. Mm -hmm. When I first took on the assignment, I didn't realize it was gonna be as um, intense. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize it was gonna be as visual. And, and, the, and the racist comments are really still are unsettling to me. And speaking of racist comments, let me tell you what goes on in this territory. And I'll let you draw your own speculation, right? So, um, Thursday, Thursday, I actually attended my son's. Um, Award ceremony at Greece Athena would be this because again, um, I got there seven o'clock. I leave around like eight forty-five. Once I leave at eight forty-five, I realize that my car was keyed. The whole side of my car was keyed. I go and ask the principal, like, "Yo, this is somebody keyed my car. Do y'all have cameras?" He said, "No, etc." You know, make a long story short. My son goes to school the next day. He asked the two black security guards if there's cameras. They said, yeah, we got cameras that cover the back of the parking lot. So they go to review the camera. Guess what? There's a security guard, ex-cop, that's key in my car. So then you ask yourself, what's the Goodness. moment? Yeah, this this is a lie. This is like what I'm doing right now. So I'm still, you know. Wait, what did you do to make, what, like? What did I do or what do I represent? That's right. That's, right. that's ridiculous. That's So that speaks, so mind you. Many could speculate, because again, you know, here you got a brother, young brother in a suit walking out of a nice car, going into a school building. You know, obviously that could, you know, it could be a host of different reasons. The motivation, is it racially charged? I believe so. Many other people believe so, even some of the security guards, but you know, that's neither here or there. But the reality is this, I walked outside, my car is keyed up by a school security guard who was the next cop. Who I had no relationship with. That's crazy. So as we talk about criticism, some of it comes from just sheer hatred, you know, for the work I'm doing and what I represent and the message I'm trying to convey. Some of it comes from jealous individuals who feel like, you know, they should have the opportunity. Some of it comes from people who don't understand and know the work and they feel like I have a whole bunch of money and I'm not making wise decisions. It comes from a host of different reasons. Um, but oftentimes people just don't understand and that's where you find, you know, so much, you know, so much criticism. And then, and then people don't publicize praise. So the amount of praise, I get more praise and I have more support. For example, for every, crit, for every critique, I probably have three times as much praise. The praise is not going to be in the media. The praise is not what you're going to find on social media, right? Right, because when I looked up um, our Mappy, 
it was always what wasn't going as planned right. or what, you know, it wasn't anything positive. Right. And I know for sure that there are some positive outcomes right. with the initiative. But, of course, like you said, the media doesn't highlight that. That's right. And this thing, the, the one article that was really good was the Rochester Business Journal. The most recent, they actually got it right. And uh, WXXI tried to get it right too. They did a series, leaving Channel Eight. So now the media is starting to come around. But okay. the DNC was was the DNC is the articles yeah. that came up. DNC is is largely responsible for that narrative. And, and even though I like one of the reporters in particular, she and I are good people. But most of the staff they are no longer even there. But the DNC is is largely responsible for the public narrative that was negative around our mapping. Mm. So. I know that it's been a long, it's probably been a long few years and it's going to be a long road. When is the, when is the, is it a grant funded position or is it? Yeah, it was. So I, we diversified the funding. So initially, you know, New York State obviously contributes um, generously towards the effort. Um, but ESL and other local foundations are supporting the work. So we, we've, done, we've done a good job diversifying funding. You don't want to have, um, just one organization that's responsible because if the organization or entity or municipality decides to go in a different direction and there goes the effort. That's what happened at Right, exactly. So, so I'm, I'm, you know, wise enough from my experience in human services and working in, you know, uh, for other organizations, I know that was one of the initial goals was to diversify funding and we did that. Okay. So we're around for at least another good five years. We got five years of funding and that's, that's that's from a fundraising perspective, being you know an executive director for a nonprofit because it's considered a nonprofit, even though it's a public-private um, partnership. Being able to secure funding for five years is, is, is really a, it's not an easy feat. What about those more seasoned leaders that are involved in the effort who um you know haven't been real receptive or embraced some of the things that are moving forward? How do you handle? I think most of them understand. I think I was even forewarned. Many of the season leaders, they actually support me publicly and privately because um, they're not necessarily critical of me as much as they're critical of the system okay. and some of the institutional actors because they don't have any trust in some of them. Because think about it like this. We talk about failed efforts and initiatives as if they were not governed by people. Mm-hmm. So... Take, for example, the children's zone. We talk about the children's zone if it was a failed effort, but we failed the effort. There were people involved in that, the same leaders, some of them, many of them around our mapping table. So we talk about it as if it's this own separate thing. So we have a tendency of placing the blame in this community, and, and, and it's unfortunate, but the reality is, you know, we're working to mitigate some of that. Um, but many of the seasoned leaders, they, they support the work that's happening. Okay. Do you ever think that we're going to eradicate poverty in Rochester, New York? We're never going to eradicate poverty. We can reduce poverty. Um, ideally, aspirationally, yes, I want nobody to have to experience poverty. Can we reduce poverty? Yes. Yes. Absolutely, unequivocally, without a doubt, I believe we can do it. And I believe we're going to. Are we going to eradicate and eliminate poverty? I don't. And again, I'm transparent. Um, no. Okay. Well, we are at our time. This has been such a good conversation. Like, I feel like I need to open a book right now. I have it back. Y'all got me in raw form right now. Y'all got me in raw form. Like, you and Natalie Shepard came in here and were yourselves, and I appreciate that. Not saying anybody else wasn't themselves, but sometimes when you're in public eye, you can't be yourself, and you can't tell the truth, and you can't be authentic. But I appreciate you guys for doing that because it was definitely dope. It's good to have your input and to see things from your lens. Um, tell people where they can find you at quickly. Yeah, they can find me. If, if anything, check out Neighborhood Scholar. NeighborhoodScholar.com. That's the website. You can purchase merchandise from the website. You can learn more about the movement. I'm also, um, you can find me on IG, Neighborhood Scholar, or Facebook, Doc Litterden Brock, and then Doc Brock 06 on IG. So those are the only two mediums I use right now as far as social media. And then um, if you pull up anything on Google, you can find a whole bunch of stuff. Just don't believe any of it. Okay. 
<laughs> All right, you have been tuned into the 5A5 report with Atiana and Bishop. Catch us next Sunday from 6 to 7 p.m. We are out. Thank you, thank you, thank you for coming on. We gotta take a picture. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I wasn't sure how transparent. I was like, y'all, let's get this <laughs> Nah, a lot of people come up here and they try to watch what they say. They, oh, so you don't really get to. Yeah. I need real answers. Right. <laughs> <They're> like. <laughs>